Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice Podcast. Tonight we have a very special guest and some of you may already know this man, but I'd like to introduce him to others. But first, let's get my partner in, see what she has to say. I'm ready to find out what Bobby's thoughts are on our headline cases tonight. We're doing headline case this week. It's a lot different than our last episode where Amel Mutlu came in and told us how to find stillness and peace in the midst of all this chaos. I hope that you've practiced some of those things. I did. I just got back from yoga, so my hair is like really wet right now. And I needed a balance because we're going to get into some graphic discussion tonight, something that's been all over the news. And as much as some of us actually may not even really want to talk about it because it's just graphic and sad, we do have to address it. And obviously, Chris, being in law enforcement and me being a criminal defense attorney, we're going to speak from both sides and give a little insight on the case. And we have our special guest tonight. It's my first time meeting him. I'm really excited. I've done some reading on him. He is not related to a boxer that I thought, but he's probably just as cool. So go ahead and introduce him, Chris, because I know he's your boy. That's right. So Special Agent Bobby Chacon is a retired FBI agent and attorney who currently advises television shows and movies on FBI-related issues, as well as provides commentary on national news outlets regarding law enforcement, counterterrorism, 
and other matters, mainly involving the FBI. Bobby Chacon also appears as an on-camera expert on several true crime television series such as It Takes a Killer, Deep Undercover, Murderous Affairs, I Married a Murderer, and others. Bobby Chacon has recently been called upon to offer his expert advice on investigations conducted in the television shows Hunting Hitler on the History Channel and Breaking Homicide on Investigation Discovery. Family, I'd like to introduce you some and welcome to others, Mr. Bobby Chacon. Nice to meet you all out there in podcast land. Chris has always been a favorite of mine to appear recently on a show together last week, I think, right, Chris? Yeah, I think it was last week. We've been making these media circuits so much. We run across each other every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been a fan. Pretty cool. It is. Welcome, Bobby. So it sounds like you consult on a lot of comedy shows. Do you ever do anything intense or heavy? (laughs) After I retired, I'd spent 27 years with the FBI. And after I retired, I went to work on a show called Criminal Minds, which as most people know is about a serial killer every week. It's a pretty dark show. My wife can't even watch it. And so I was a technical advisor for two years. And then I went over to, as a writer. So I became a writer on the show. And so now I'm a WGA writer. I went from there after the show ended, it's run on CBS, which was on 15 years. I went over to HBO Max and I wrote a crime show for Nicole Kidman that we finished just before the pandemic and it never got filmed. So yeah. I, no, that's what my I do during the day. I write screenplays, I write movies, I write TV shows. And oddly enough, I did just finish pitching an FBI-based comedy. It didn't get a lot of traction, unfortunately, but we thought we had a winner. A production company loved it and took it up. They put a really big comedy showrunner next to us in the meetings, and he really liked it. And none of it, we were all scratching our heads that we couldn't get anybody to bite on it. But um, So it's it was, not even uh, out there for people to watch? Not out there. It was, a, it was literally based on a true life story. I went to Iraq in 2005. Operations had a, like a compound, and we lived and worked there. And we had our own little speakeasy there. And it was, uh, we named it O'Neill's after my old boss, John O'Neill in New York, who a lot of people know from the Looming Tower. John was our special agent in charge of counterterrorism in New York City and retired in August of 2001. So we called it O'Neill's and it was a speakeasy and it became a hot ticket in Baghdad because the military was not technically allowed to drink. But we had a little compound that the military police couldn't penetrate and you'd have to have a secret chip to get in. And, And basically it became like a cheers. And we pitched this show as a cheers meets mash it was a speakeasy set in a war zone and at any given night at that bar there was this eclectic mix of people like rick's cabaret and we'll do that it'll bring everyone <laughs> together right yeah and alcohol was rare there and yeah and so we based the show on that bar on o'neill's and the but that makes that are, a lot of sense there. that's why chris and i have a podcast called crime and cookie juice i think somebody even said it almost sounds silly do you understand the content that we're dealing with and mm-hmm. how sometimes you have to just lighten up a little bit i mean right. you can't live this constantly and to invite a little bit of bourbon or wine or whatever into the conversation allows you to maybe ease up. You're not so tense. You're a little more open. And yeah, maybe it's a little lighter. But when your full-time job is this work, right? It's not like it's a hobby of ours where we just listen mm-hmm. to a true crime or because then we could turn it on and shut it off. But when you're living it, it's a little different, right, Bobby? I mean, you've been doing Absolutely. This and I think that's exactly right. And But that's also the reason why People that don't live this and don't get in, ingrained in it can sometimes misperceive mm-hmm. our gallows humor or our attitude sometimes that we can crack a joke or do something like that because they don't live it and they don't understand when you're so immersed in it, 
you develop mechanisms to deal with some of the constant barrage of micro traumas that you're dealing with. And so it can be very easily misperceived by people who aren't in it. And so I think that's what what I have to deal with sometimes. It's a coping mechanism, ultimately. It is a job too. And of course, it's part of your life and you go to bed at night. And I know I can't even imagine the things that you and Chris have seen throughout your careers. Going to bed at night, it stays with you. There's no way day in and day out you're you can be like a robot and take in that content and not be affected by it. So it, it is absolutely a coping mechanism. And I'm curious because our last podcast, it was the new year in honor of the new year. We really did want to bring somebody in. I know we're a true crime podcast, but we brought somebody in who was a life coach and a wellness advocate to talk about how to ba- find a balance when you are consuming all this content, because it is an energy that stays with you, whether you're working it, you're listening to it, seeing it. And so she gave us some tips and I'm curious, what's something you've implemented throughout the years? You've been at this for many years. What do you find helps you wind down at the end of the day and let some of this go? First of all, I stop my day by meditating. So that's one of the things I do because I do, I still do have trouble sleeping sometimes. And I do have some triggers that when my wife's around, it's good because I can avoid them or she avoids them for me. That's like a certain type of movie or a certain type of thing. And if I don't, and she's a producer, so she's always on the road. She's on the road right now. I will get triggered without knowing it. And then I will have problems sleeping or I will wake up in the middle of the night. And so I always start my day meditating. So that's a way for me to clear anything that happened during the night and then start my day on an even keel. And then I also have a therapist that I see on a semi-regular basis. And it's the same, I was using the same person that I used after 9-11. I was in New York on 9-11. I was an FBI agent in New York City on 9-11. I was there and I spent months after that there and I'm a native New Yorker. And that's when I started that. And then over the years with different events that I, that were in my life, including the death of my dad and all kinds of things, you just there's, if I hurt my arm, I go to see my orthopedic doctor. If I hurt my mind, I go to see my therapist. It's just a natural thing. And unfortunately, you know, with our taboo on mental health in this country, mm-hmm. I don't have that. I don't have a taboo. I don't really feel, I don't feel that I can't tell people about it or I can't say it on a forum like this to, to you guys. I mean, that's just, it's just natural. Because you've like, experienced you know, the benefits. No, it works. It's like it's a doctor. You go to a doctor when you have a problem and there's specialists and you go to a certain type of doctor for a certain type of problem. And that's the kind of doctor you go for that kind of problem. I'm glad you were able to say that on this on the podcast too, Bobby, because you and I both know that's not a mindset that carries over to most law enforcement officers. They won't go and seek that help. They won't seek the attention. And I'll be one of the first to say it. It was very taboo with me. I would never go and seek any type of medical attention or medical help to deal with stuff that was happening in my head. And <laughs> it, it just reminds me that I'm writing a book. I'm co-authoring a book right now about mental health and law enforcement and dealing with those little micro traumas that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And it's causing me to dig deep into some stuff that I never knew existed. And I think that for me, whereas I'm not a big meditator, maybe I should get into meditation or something like that. But writing for me has been, it's been my meditation. Me focusing on and being able to now talk about some of those micro traumas has been very helpful to me. And maybe I may seek us some other type of help later on, but not now. I think this is the best thing for me, but I'm glad you sure. were able to say that. Everybody has their own thing. Whatever that is for you, 
find it. That's all I right. say. Whatever it is. Absolutely. And we had a program and Director Mueller, who was the former director of the FBI, right after 9-11, he brought a woman in called Catherine Terman. And she was, she he hired her at the assistant director level to run all of our employee assistance programs, victim witness assistance programs. She put a bunch of programs into place. And one of the things that I would do on the dive team is I... Every time we came back from a recovery of human remains, we had, and we had a warehouse. The dive team worked out of a warehouse, what we call an offsite. It was covert and it didn't say FBI. And so we didn't go to an office every day. We went to the warehouse. And, and I would have one of our office counselors come to our warehouse and everybody on the team had to sit for one hour in the conference room with it. You could stare at the wall for an hour, but everybody was going to do it. It was mandatory. So that, again, Chris, the stigma that was attached and still, stuff with that, I didn't want that stigma. So everybody was going to spend an hour in there at a different time in the day. And during that hour, you could arrange for follow-up visits off-site somewhere else, so no out of sight of everybody else. But I will say we had a good team and everybody understood and there was no stigma in, with our team, but I made sure that everybody would have to go in there for an hour and just have that. And then, like I said, they could have follow-on care and make follow-on arrangements after that if they wanted to. And I had a guy come to me and take a leave of absence from the team because we had I remember the case. We went to San Diego, recovered Chelsea King, a 15-year-old cross-country star on our high school team. She was murdered, abducted and murdered by a predator. We recovered her body. And he had two 15-year-old, he had a 15 or 14-year-old daughter at home, both blonde and junior lifeguards and things. And he came to me and he said, This thing hit me, and I have to take a little step away. So we took a year leave of absence, went and worked counterterrorism, came back to our team after a year. But that everybody understands. So as a team leader, I had to be on guard and I asked them for my own training, like. People throw themselves into the gym. But Chris, also because there was such a stigma in our profession mm -hmm. that divorce rates are yeah. much higher than national. Alcoholism, much higher than national. Domestic violence, much higher than national averages in our profession. And these are the results mm -hmm. of traumas that we're experiencing and our minds not, not being processing. Able to yeah. not processing properly. Mm -hmm. And they're throwing themselves into behavior that's oftentimes destructive and non-productive, certainly. And um, it is processing. So Chris, when you say I just write right now, but that's therapeutic, that is okay. A lot of times in therapy, I'm talking more than my therapist has anything to say, but it's about me processing my thoughts that we don't often have time to even think about throughout the day because you're doing all these different things. You're going to work, you're doing all these Zooms, you're doing all these lives. You don't have time to process and sitting in therapy gives you that opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to get these thoughts out, but it may not even be somebody speaking back to you. It could just be you getting your thoughts out on paper, which is great. However, anybody needs to do it. It's just about processing your thoughts and getting guidance on them is great. But I love this conversation because it's something we've been talking about a lot lately. And Chris is going to co-author this book. And I do believe that both of our professions, attorneys have high rates of alcoholism, drug use. Everybody thinks in these professions, they hold people up here. Oh, you can't break the law and you are the law. No, that's mm -hmm. where a lot of the problems are because you are dealing with this content constantly and it's heavy and that you need an outlet. Think of the guys that went into men and women that went into that house in Moscow, Idaho, who yeah. probably have never seen a scene like that before. Right. right. You and I have seen those scenes. I worked in New York City. You worked in the big city homicide unit. But those men and women probably never saw anything like that. Mm -hmm. I also think back to the Uvalde school shooting with all those murdered children. I mean, they're knee deep in it. And imagine those deputies that were probably don't have a whole lot of that that go on in their jurisdiction. And now they're looking at a classroom, pretty much a pile 
of dead young kids and teachers. And how do you think that's not going to require some type of mental health counseling? I mean, it's ludicrous to think that you could overcome a mental injury like that because it's just like getting shot in the arm. It's a, it's an injury. And there are doctors that are specialized in dealing with those injuries. It's just that our society has traditionally not seen it that way. But it is unnatural to just see that throughout your day, to experience that kind of trauma. And you could think you're Superman, but you're taking it in. It is affecting you, whether you know it or not. Speaking of the Idaho murders, that is obviously our headline case tonight. But I think before we get into that heavy content, one thing Chris and I do as an outlet is we drink a little bit. (laughs) Not too much, okay? We're not promoting alcoholism (laughs) on here. We're not saying... Pour yourself a drink when you're stressed out. We're saying first try to meditate, pray, or do yoga, whatever it may be, therapy, and then pour yourself a drink because sometimes you you need it. So what are you drinking, Vatna? So tonight I've pulled out my bottle of Willet. This is the cool little bottle that I have of Willet. It's a bourbon. It is a, yes, it's really nice. It's like a bong. Let me. (laughs) It does look kind of like a bong. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) But. But it's a pretty cool bourbon. It's a really, I know, right? Of course you would say that. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's a very smooth drink. It's probably one of the more expensive bottles that I have. But I, hey, my boy Bobby is coming on. Pull out the good stuff for Bobby. We've established you. You're not conservative when it comes to your bourbon. (laughs) All right. I'm excited to share mine tonight. Sometimes I'm just going to go off brand here. This is all due to my husband. I'm actually having a beer But it is a Goose Island Bourbon County brand 14 stout. So it's stout aged in rye whiskey barrels with cassia bark, cacao nibs, panela, and coconut water. So it's just basically a stout that's aged in bourbon. It tastes chocolate because it has got the cacao and it's freaking good. It is so good. This is better than any of the bourbons (laughs) I've been drinking on. Hey, you can't say that. We can't, you got to. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Bourbons are good, but this is like Bobby said, it's a little chocolatey. It's almost like somebody poured some Abuelita's chocolate in my bourbon. (laughs) It's really good. That's what I'm enjoying tonight. And I think these stouts are pretty strong, so I should take it easy. I don't know. (laughs) They are. They are, right? And from what I've heard my husband says these come out after thanksgiving they're very much of a winter kind of yeah right they're a little oh, heavier it's, heavy. they're heavier. it's, heavy. yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. a dessert this is like yeah. a dessert yeah. wine but they're limited and people wait in line all night yeah i'm excited it's good it's worth it for sure so goose island bourbon Nice. So what are you drinking tonight, Bobby? I would be in a, like a Samuel Smith's oatmeal stout or something like that, because I'm a more of a beer drinker than a brown liquor drinker. But my brother and father, both big bourbon guys, my dad's not with us anymore, but big bourbon guys, they also happen to be both retired NYPD. So there may be a, uh, t- there may be a connection between heavier liquor and the cops and family. But I've just got, I like vodka when I do drinks and I got... I think it's Tito's Tito's rocks with the lemon. Can't go wrong with Tito's. Yeah, I think I get, that's what I have. Tito's Very rocks. refreshing. And yeah, and when I have a live radio interview to do right after this, so I, that's I right. That's <laughs> so. right. Then on that note, let's get into our headline case tonight. And I do want to remind everyone that this content can be graphic, so please do take care while listening. But we do want to just give everyone an update on the Idaho murders in case you haven't turned on your television or opened an app. As everyone knows, an arrest has been made. We knew it would happen. It was a matter of time. 
time. But there's some interesting things in the kind of person who was arrested. Brian Koberger, who is 28 years old, he was a student at WSU. He is the suspect in this case. And I say suspect, I want to make it clear. That's what he is. He is not convicted. He is innocent until proven guilty. So we are going to analyze this evidence based on that. And we have both sides here. We've got a vet homicide detective, FBI agent. And now we got your criminal defense attorney. Nobody get upset with me as I point out some things that may or could be an issue for the prosecution in this case. But it is alleged that Koberker, 28 years old, broke into an off-campus rental house in Moscow, Idaho, in the early hours of November 13th and committed the murder of four students, Kaylee Goncalves, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. They were all found dead after police responded to a 911 call. Now, information is quickly developing about Koberger, which I find interesting is he is a PhD student and a teaching assistant in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Washington State University. So this is the suspect in this case. He goes to the university, PhD student, and he studies criminal justice. You'll find these guys that commit a murder such as this, and sometimes you'll find out that they have a fascination with the investigation, with learning more about how these investigations are conducted. There has been many popular cases where the suspect or the convicted is in law enforcement or has a fascination, an obsession with becoming law enforcement. You want to be the savior or you want to be the actual perpetrator, which is it? And it's almost like they have these personality disorders. The volunteer fireman that becomes an arsonist and then he responds to the fire himself. It's not- It helps put it out. Right. Right. It's, I think, some there's a lot of people who go into law enforcement because they really do just want to help people but then there's some people who go into law enforcement because they're fascinated with it they just love the true crime they love solving the murders they love getting in the head and the mind of a murderer and i think those ones are a little more dangerous right because they're seeking that thrill and if it is koberger this explains where his fascination comes from and why he committed this crime it could it could also be just he's evil because i thought in the beginning when they were saying oh obviously he was going to school to become the perfect criminal that's not what you learn in a phd track mm-hmm. in criminology you don't learn how to commit the perfect crime it's not yeah. a school for that that's it's completely different it's mostly especially when you're pursuing a phd it's mostly academic and most right. people who get their phds stay in academia academia and so they don't go back out into the real world so it's not really this people are saying oh he was trying to be the perfect colonel like clearly he didn't do a good job if that i said that the other day on the promo show if he was going to school to be the perfect criminal he should get his tuition money back because clearly <laughs> can we didn't talk work. about that there's a lot of mistakes made in this case if it was him in reading the 18 page affidavit it's heavy and circumstantial evidence there is some direct evidence it seems we don't know enough about that that is the dna it's not the dna is a match and everyone who has listened to our podcast and listened to other episodes with arthur young our dna expert it's not a match What they did is they were able to recover the father's DNA from the trash at the parents' home. And then they took that and they got the DNA from the knife sheath that was left behind at the crime scene. And they were able to say that's the biological father of that individual. So basically it's 99.9% likely that Mr. Koberger is the father of the person who committed this crime. But we also don't know how much DNA was recovered. And that does present an issue that a lot of people don't know right now. Yeah, I think it's a, it's never really a match with DNA, right? It's always this DNA and this DNA together 
you could exclude 99.998% of the population as having this DNA. And that's what it leaves you with. It's the same in the OJ case. And I think that's what confuses juries sometimes. You never get a one-for-one -one match. This is that person. It's an exclusion type thing. And if you can exclude 99.998% of the people or the male population, then you're left with this guy who lives eight miles from the crime scene and may have a fascination Just with crime. And that other cooperating evidence is going to become vitally important. It becomes important <laughs> in any case, but it's going to be very important in this case. So let's talk about the other corroborating evidence. Chris, what other circumstantial evidence do you think is pretty damning in this case? The fact that he lived in close proximity of the area, the fact that he had access to or was the owner of a vehicle that they saw in that general area. There was something else I can't remember. See, the fact that the suspect lives nearby, it's neither here nor there for me. I say the defense wants to argue see, he knew somebody who had that and he once touched it. I think but we, for we don't me, know. We don't know if it was touch DNA, right? We, I, I mean, I'm assuming I was it under, was on the was button blood. of the sheath. It's on the button of the sheath. I'm Which is where you would normally put your thumb. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. you know, right. It's we don't know. They may have blood too, but what they, they used in the blood. affidavit was the was they just said DNA from the button, the the snap, or the metal snap thing on the sheet, which you know, obviously you use to push down, lock that in. And this is the scales of justice, right? You might not think that him living eight miles down the road is determinative, and it's not. But it's another piece that we put on this side of the scale. And eventually, you put the white Elantra, you put his phone records in the area of the house. And then the scales start looking oh, different. And let's talk about the white Elantra because that's the main piece of evidence from the very beginning. They were looking for a white Elantra. Why this Elantra is circling the area. Okay, let's talk about how it, he's not brilliant. He didn't learn all these things in criminal mm -hmm. justice. Why? Because he passes the house four times. It's the fourth time he pulls up to the house. So you see that Elantra there in the hour leading up. Okay. It's not many hours before it's within that hour. This car keeps passing by and there's not many other cars passing by during that time. So it's not like it's a major highway where you're just going to see a bunch of different white Elantras. So that does not look good. And they really did their work. I'm going to say, I'm pretty impressed with this affidavit and the work that was put in because obviously a defense attorney is going to argue, okay, how do we know it's his car? How do we know other people didn't drive his car, use his car? They brought in a lot of evidence of traffic stops that he's had in the past year where he is the sole occupant of the car. He is the individual driving the car. It is registered in his name. Are there many other white Elantras out there? Absolutely. I drove a black Elantra. Those are great little cars. But point is that the likelihood of this individual going to Washington State University and having this car, which this car had no front plates, and we know that in his home state of Pennsylvania, they didn't require front plates, which Idaho does require. So all of these things adding up, why are you driving over and over knowing there's likely some kind of cameras in the area? The only smart thing that if it was him that he did was he shut off his phone. And even then, that can be damning evidence because a prosecution is going to show mm -hmm. that's weird. This guy who didn't commit these murders and is just hanging out at home between this hour that the murders are being committed, his phone is not pinging off of any cell towers. It's not get, picking up a network when normally it would. And then the cell phone is turned on again later and it pings, right? It's about five in the morning. I think it's turned on and they mm -hmm. think he committed the murders a little after four. And then yeah. it pings back in the neighborhood of the house about four hours later or five hours later. Right. Because we know that people tend to what? 
go back, go back to the area. Yeah. I mean, he's probably sitting at home wondering why it's not coming across as a breaking news story where, you know, what's happening. And so he probably goes back there and tries to take a look, see if there's some squad cars out front and is there ambulances there or what's going on? If in fact, he's the guy, he would have been like fascinated with what's happening in the aftermath of his work. Right. He knows what happened in the house and he wants to see what's happening. And he's wondering why it's not coming across his TV screen. And maybe he goes back there to take a look. Especially because now we know, according to the affidavit, that not only were there surviving roommates, one of them says that she saw an individual who had a mask on, but she could see his eyes. She was able to describe his height and his build and that she was scared. She locked herself in the bathroom. That's at four, almost five in the morning. And the 911 isn't called until 11 hours later. So if it is him, he must've been surprised by what's going on. This person didn't call 911. And I have to ask, I'm not trying to say that the roommate was in on it, anything like that, but have you seen this where somebody waits that long? I mean, if they were that scared, why wasn't that call made? Is this pretty rare? Find yeah, that so unusual. I, that's that that is unusual. It is rare. Even if you're hiding from a person, you don't wait that many hours before you come out. You may wait three or four hours. Three or four hours, I can understand. Six, seven, nine, ten hours. I don't want to cast anything on this young lady. She did yeah, what I'm she sure did. Yeah, but I mean, being a veteran homicide investigator, and I've worked hundreds of homicide cases, that's unique, even in my experience. But I will say, I think that we will get that answer eventually. As it looks right now, she's the only eyewitness to this crime. Not eyewitness per se that she saw him stab, but if she could make an ID of him, she's the only thing close to an eyewitness that they have. So I think that we'll hear more from her. Mm -hmm. She may even be, if it goes to trial, she obviously might be a witness at trial, but I think they have to guard again, her mental health. They have to guard her very carefully because, you know, the internet is really nasty sometimes. And I think that we just need to give her space. Nothing she did or didn't do could have changed the outcome of what happened. I think you'll get a medical examiner on there that said, no matter how quickly an ambulance got there, these people would have bled out before they ever got there. So I don't think she calling an ambulance would have saved anybody's life. I think these are massive and gross wounds with a large blade weapon. And so I don't think that there's any, there's gonna be any question about that she could have saved anybody. So I look at her as almost like a surviving victim of this thing. And, and thank goodness that he didn't decide to stay and finish her off and then, I think he was just so exhausted and he was coming down off of a huge adrenaline rush. And I think that's one of the explanations of his going back and forth. He did a three-point turn on one of them back and forth. I think he was getting himself so hyped up because he spent probably weeks, if not months, thinking about this and planning it out. And as he got closer and closer to the witching hour, his adrenaline was pumping and pumping. And so he started losing some of his attention to detail because you start getting laser focused on the killing and he's probably getting himself amped up and amped up. And so he's forgetting, oh, I shouldn't drive by three times because now it's like, there's the house, there's where I'm going, there's where I'm gonna commit these murders. And so I think that that's a sign of why he, why he wasn't a serial killer, why he wasn't cool, calm and collected, why he made all these mistakes, because this was probably, hopefully his first time. I, the last serial killer case I worked was 2011 before I retired in 2014. He had he admitted to us 11 murders, he'd probably done 30. But he, you and you can see his interrogation videos on YouTube because he hung himself in jail before we could take him to trial. But but he was cool and, and collected. And who was that? Israel Keys. 
And my dive team went up to Northern Alaska and we drilled to a frozen lake and recovered his dismembered last victim, a 19-year-old girl who worked in a coffee shop. And you can see him talking about his murders. He's almost laughing about it. It's evil personified, no question, when you look at these interrogation videos. And and you just, he was cool, calm, and collected, and he got away with it for 14 years. I think more than that, he, I think his first murder was like 18, and we he was arrested at 34. So these guys that are like real, true serial killer, they're calm in the face of that. Mm -hmm. But He's this guy, calm. I don't think this guy was calm. I think he was amped up. He got himself all, and he made those mistakes in part because of that. That would make a lot of sense because he's forgetting everything he should know as somebody who does want to intern with the local police department and all of that by passing back and forth. It's almost like he's talking himself up. And mm -hmm. according to the affidavit, uh, this individual's cell phone records, they're ping in front of the house near the home multiple times months before. And we also know that this person put out a survey at some point as part of one of his papers. He wanted to know a better understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making with committing a crime. That's probably going to be some damning evidence used against him in court because that's showing he's interested about getting into the mind of somebody who can commit crimes. You think dealing with a sociopath no who doubt. lacks empathy? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think, look, I don't think he's a, like a seasoned serial killer, but I certainly think he has sociopath. He shows some sociopathic tendencies, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's diagnosed. Look, what people don't understand is his... A sociopath, it's a medical diagnosis and it should be made by medical professionals, right? It's in their methodology. And I think that obviously, I think before trial, there will be psychiatric evaluations ordered by the court of him and maybe even requested by the defense, who knows. But I think that's going to show, my assumption is it will show sociopathic behavior. And there's also rumors, this is just rumors, that he's possibly online in discussion rooms, chat rooms talking about it, disguising as somebody else and talking about the murder and possible evidence that could be pretty damning if they are able to prove that's his user mm -hmm. coming from his computer, that he's somebody who was very interested in these crimes. And like you said, we know that people who do perpetrate these kind of crimes, they go back. A lot of times they're caught because of that. They go back to the scene of the crime or they're online talking about it. There's this fascination. They're obsessed with what they did. And sadly, in this case, that, that would show very little remorse, right? You're getting on there yep. and you're having these conversations yeah. and and that's why everybody gets caught up on the why of it right and i always said to me the why is the least important thing because first mm -hmm. of all it's not required by statute the prosecutors don't have to prove why you committed a murder just that you did commit the murder of course the prosecutors like to have that because it tells the story to the jury it's easier if you have a motive but you certainly don't need a motive for a murder for most murder statutes and quite frankly in those cases that i've been involved in the why of a psychopath or a sociopath doesn't make any sense to us we're rational human beings and we're gonna we're gonna ask for an explanation of an irrational act it's never going to be satisfactory to us it's never going to provide comfort to the families even though we all want to know, like we all want to know it. Like I see all these people online want to know why, as if the answer will provide us comfort, as if the answer will make sense to us. And neither of those things are going to happen. To dwell on the why of it, I never really got involved in that because it's just, 
it's white noise. If you have a if you have a clear motive, if it's revenge, if it's jealousy, obviously, of course. But for these irrational psychopathic murders, the, yeah, we'll f- figure out the why, and well, he like might said, say it, but like, does it make any sense? It won't. Make and any even sense. if it is jealousy or anything like that, it's not justified. Nothing. No, I mean, this not. is just sick and sad. And I mean, sadly, it is a house of four women, and it's just a reminder of the way that women are exposed as victims to the hands of men. And so you hear it a lot. We've done already on our podcast and we've only had it around about a month. We had another case about a girl murdered off campus. So it's one of those things where as parents now you do have to be vigilant. You have to make sure if you are in a home of just females, get an alarm system, possibly something that even your parents have control over late at night. So when say you come back from partying or whatever, and you pass out, maybe they can keep an eye on it. There's all this they technology. Can, they can available. lock it remotely. Absolutely. I have a neighbor here that he's only a weekender next door. And I know that he has the ability from his main house, which is 100 miles away, to unlock the door for his plumber, let the guy in and lock it again after the guy leaves. And the whole time he has cameras in there that can... Now, I know this is an off-campus house. The landlord probably wants to keep costs down so he maximizes his profit on the off the rent. But there are... But you if could I put a, a ring child, in on your own. The parents could pay for some of that stuff themselves. And I think they'd be advised to do stuff like that. I, and what, another thing this brings up is even in the most bucolic settings, even in the most rural areas, even in in places we don't think evil is going to happen, evil happens. And yeah. if you're in some campus that looks idyllic and friendly and nice, it doesn't matter. You should security should always be at the top of your list. Absolutely. And that's not paranoia. That's smarts. We know now school is not a safe place. Right. right. We see it all over the news all the time. So you got to do what you got to do to keep your kids safe. And everybody else needs to keep a lookout on behalf of these young people, right? Because they are so valuable and they are so vulnerable. Two sisters and I raised by my dad, who was a cop and he schooled them in. It's a matter of situational awareness and cutting down the odds that you'll be a victim. It's always a chance, but there are things you can do to cut down on your odds yeah. of being mm-hmm. a victim. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We, I just want to update everyone. Koberger will be back in court on January 12th. So that's just a few days away. He is still in county jail. He has no bail. And so he is eligible for a preliminary hearing within the next 14 days from his arraignment. So we'll see if that's going to be taking place and we'll know more from there. But Bobby, thanks for coming on and giving us your insight on this case. We definitely appreciate it. Hopefully I can visit with you guys again and and then and I'll give you plenty of time. We can talk about some other things too. You are in sure, demand, sure. bro. We appreciate right. it time. Hey, Bobby, before you go, can you give our listeners a place where they can reach out to you if they want to talk or if they want to follow you on any social media? What's your handles? At On Twitter, it's at FBI, at Bobby Chacon FBI. And then I have a bobbychacon.com website. They can find me there. They can email me there at either bobbychacon.com or you can get me on Twitter at at Bobby Chacon FBI. Thanks again, brother, for coming on. We'll see you around the circuit, man. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Appreciate it. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to bring back our favorite DNA expert, Arthur. Arthur has been with us on several of our investigations with Reasonable Doubt, and he's recently joined us on the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. He offered to bring us some more insight into the case that we just finished talking about, the Idaho murders. And I'm curious to know how you feel about it, Arthur. Mr. Young, what's going on? Tell us, I mean, have you been watching the news and staying up to date on I'm coming into this case a little bit late. My interest did not get peaked until they had a suspect. So this was uh, this was fairly recent. 
and I was mostly interested in how they were following, how they developed this suspect and how they followed him all the way to Pennsylvania, which is where I live. He's about two hours north of me. Oh, wow. Those yeah. Pennsylvania folks, man, we had a lot of cases on reasonable doubt in PA. I tell you, we were going to PA all the time. Maybe I don't want to hang out in PA no. anymore. Y'all are dangerous. <laughs> no, he's alleged. He's alleged. We know that. But what's piqued your interest about it? The Initially, this was a very gruesome homicide. And it was speculated that this could have been a group of people, or it could theoretically have been done by one. Motive still remained a little. There were a lot of elements that were intriguing. But when the suspect was basically confirmed by DNA analysis, I was like, what did they analyze? Was there something left at the scene? Was there a blood stain? Or was there some piece of evidence? And we started seeing some articles about forensic genealogy started coming up. And I was like, okay, so they did not have a DNA sample from him directly. Instead, they were tracing it to him through a relative that is in a public DNA database. Okay, because I read in the affidavit that they were able to recover a piece of trash from the parents' house, so they were using the father's DNA. Is that not? Correct. It is correct. And, and if I'm correct, they ran the DNA on the item that they recovered, and they connected it with the father, so they had to get a confirmation DNA hit from him. That's the reason why they go and pull his information from his trash bin or something to that effect, then can confirm that the person that's responsible for this murder is the son or direct descendant of this man. Is that not correct? That is correct. Okay. Um, as you said, there's there are a couple of things that we're a little bit unsure about at this moment. For example, is it the father who is in the database or is it some other relative, a cousin, a second cousin somewhere, maybe an aunt or an uncle? But basically it traces back to this individual, Mr. Koberger, and to get a DNA sample from him, they're not able to identify him per se, but they're testing a sample from the father. And that basically confirms that the DNA from the knife sheath that was left at the crime scene is that of a direct descendant. We also know that Koberger is, he's a student at the college. Why Delantra is registered to him and that's what's seen around the home at the time of the murders. So they're looking at Koberger. They were targeting him already. I'm curious because prosecution is going to argue this evidence, it can't exclude Koberger because he is the son of this a DNA profile. I'm a little interested in if it is just the button on the sheath, are we talking just a little bit of touch DNA? That would be my suspicion, yes. We haven't seen any particular details yet. But the, the amount of DNA could have just been a small, tiny quantity that was just left behind from handling it. And Arthur, that coupled with everything we know about him being a student there, his car possibly just being very close to the car that was outside of the home at the time that the crimes were committed, all of that coupled together, what are your thoughts on how strong this DNA is going to be? I think this... I think the DNA is fairly strong, to be quite honest, because the, the video surveillance that they have showing his vehicle in the vicinity at the approximate time, his DNA found on an item that was left behind at the scene. And this isn't just 
a cigarette butt or a drinking glass. This is a sheath, a leather sheath for a large knife known as a K-bar, which so far they haven't said whether or not this is the murder weapon and it hasn't been recovered yet. But it fits. So I think it's a fairly small leap in logic. Early on in the investigation, I read somewhere that they said that they thought the weapon that was used was a K-Bar type style weapon, even though it hadn't been recovered and having that. But they do have that sheath that belongs to or could be fashioned to use with a K-Bar. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's pretty strong. and. extremely curious to know what type of DNA that was found. If it was because, look, it's been my experience that when a person commits a stabbing type murder, especially with multiple victims, you usually injure yourself. That suspect will usually cut himself in some shape or fashion because it is hard to stay. It's hard to do that much damage with a weapon like a knife and not injure yourself. So, And whoever it was who did this left behind the knife sheath. Mm -hmm. Come on. You're not in your right frame of mind. You're not being Mm -hmm. very careful. Likely not gloves on unless they had gloves on during the crime, but didn't have them on when they took out the knife, perhaps. But if you're leaving the sheath at the crime scene, you are either intentionally wanting to be found or you're sloppy. And if you're sloppy, there's going to be more DNA. Arthur? I would agree. Now, let's keep in mind that a K-bar has a hilt. And the function of the hilt is to prevent the hand from sliding off the handle and onto the blade. So the hilt stops your hand from sliding. Could he have injured himself, left some blood behind? Maybe not. Although, could he have injured himself? Perhaps. But I think it would be much more likely that he would have been injured by a struggle with one of the victims, perhaps a scratch to the face or something like that. Is there... DNA that's at the scene more than the sheath? I think so. It's just a matter of finding it at this point. Right, right, right. About the only defense that I can imagine is that, yes, this was his knife. It belonged to him. And yes, it was his car, but he was not the one who was driving it that night. And he was not the one who committed the murders. That's about the only angle that that I see right now. I wouldn't want to take that case. I would. Not with that. Mm -mm, Count me out. I mean, I'll do what I got to do. He's represented by a public defender and they say he's eager to be exonerated and they want to remind everybody that you're presumed innocent until proven otherwise. But this does not sound good. And if Mr. Arthur Young is saying it's strong evidence, I I wouldn't want to bet on this one then. No. Um, Which is comforting to know that these poor young people who endured something so awful and their parents who are grieving the unimaginable could possibly have the right person and not get justice because we know that there's no justice here really, but at least they have this person now behind bars and he can't do this again if it is him because mm-hmm. that's a heinous crime. And somebody like that, they're going to do, they're getting a rush off of it and they're dangerous. I agree. I'm For me, I have a, a saying when it comes to homicide cases, murder mimics the motive. And once you understand the motive, everything else falls into place. If it was unrequited, that explains the rage. If it was just pure psychopathy then that explains parts of it it doesn't explain why the two roommates who were living on the first floor 
how they managed to escape. But in addition to the video surveillance of the car and the DNA, there's also the cell phone information, the cell tower hits, indicating that his phone was in the vicinity. So, Well, his we... phone had been in the vicinity before that night, but actually during that time of the murders, ironically, that cell phone isn't pinging off of anywhere. It's either oh, that's correct. out of service or shut off. So the absence of there being any pinging can also be problematic, right? What a good prosecutor is going to do is go back a month or so and show all the times that the phone is out of network, out of service. And if it's never, if it's always charged and it's always pinging off a cell tower, which we don't know. I mean, it's a rural area, who knows, but that's not going to look good if suddenly in that one, those few hours it's off or it's not pinging. That's strange. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for correcting me on that. It, it would be just an absolute miracle. Why would his phone be off or out of the network in that precise window? I don't think a jury is going to have real difficulty connecting the dots on this one. I hope not, because this is a rough case. It's a rough case on several different fronts from an investigative standpoint, because number one, the Moscow Police Department is going to get, depending on how the trial goes, they will get crucified about a lot of things that happened during the investigation. And it, it may be hard to explain some of the things that happened, especially with all of the attention that this case has gotten. It's gonna, some of it will be hard to explain. And mind you, I mean, the person who wrote, uh, the officer who wrote the affidavit, he's only been on the force four years. A lot of these officers, they've probably never seen anything like this. How many officers have ever seen anything like this? Maybe if you're in New York or LA, but this is pretty heinous and it's rare, but I'm sure murders alone in that town are not very common. So you are dealing with a department that is not quite familiar with how to handle something like this. While they're going to be torn apart for sure by the defense, because that's what I would do. If you go to trial on this, you're going to grasp at everything. The prosecution is going to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row and that mm -hmm. they can absolutely prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was Koberger, despite all of the mishaps that they may call it, that law enforcement did in, in the initial parts of this investigation. Agreed. But I was going to say something interesting because you had said murder mimics the motive. Mm -hmm. We just had Bobby Chacon on and he is a veteran FBI agent and he was saying he never cares about the motive, that it doesn't matter to him. And while I agree with him in that oftentimes heinous crimes, especially they just don't have a motive, a, jur a jury does look for a motive and they probably would look for it here. I think if you're the prosecutor, you're going to paint a picture of somebody who's already obsessed with crime and being in law enforcement and wanting to dissect the psyche of a killer. Arthur, we appreciate you taking the time. We know it's really late over there. It's past midnight. So thank, thank you. you so much. And family, once again, thank you for joining us for the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tonight, we had two very special guests. And join us next week where we will have more interesting conversations about crime and about cookie juice. Good night, family. Good night. Stay safe.